0: While you're finding your way to Genesis chapter nine, I wanted to read a, a letter from Maxine McGahey. Maxine's been out sick for quite some time, and it says to all the good folks at White Oak, thanks to all you, um, thanks to all of you for all your prayers, your phone calls, your get well cards and valentines. I felt loved by you and God. I missed you, and I'm so glad to be back, Maxine. So, Maxine, we're thrilled to have you back as well. And uh, always glad to have you here. And then uh, Bob Tate is back. Bob, you'd raise your hand there. Bob has been a member of our church for a while and then moved away to Georgia for work and then uh, was rehired after many years of trying at Sikorsky. And he's back in the area and just thrilled to be back in our church. And so uh, we're glad to have you back, uh, Bob. Good to have you here today. All right. Genesis 9. Did you find it? Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Brother Jared, if you just put me on the pulpit and turn this one off, I'd appreciate it. Genesis 9, and we'll be from verse 8 down through verse number 17. We'll read these responsibly. I'll begin in 8, and then we'll read together the odd-numbered verses beginning with number 9. The Bible says, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, together, verse 9, And I beheld, I established my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl of, of, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the work, to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it. And I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh. That is, the title of my message this morning is this, God's perspective on the rainbow, God's perspective on the rainbow. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we touch on a subject that has become very controversial in our society, Lord, help us to remember that this is a topic that has never been a controversy for you. Lord, I pray that our hearts today would be tender and open. And Lord, where opinions have already been established, and Lord, may we be willing to reconsider what we believe. And Based on what the Bible says, not based on what culture says. Lord, I pray that this morning the sermon will be preached with grace and will be preached in a way that honors you. And Lord, if there's somebody here today that has not accepted Christ for their salvation, that is not putting their full weight of their faith in you to get them to heaven, may the sermon today help show them their need of salvation. Thank you so much, Lord, for our church. We pray, Lord, that um, our time spent here today will have been with you in the midst of us, moving and working in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. From time to time, I find it important for us to take a look at issues that are relevant uh, for the day and age in which we live Now, there are many conflicting uh, views on the topic of gay rights and the LGBT community. Does everybody here know what the letters LGBT stand for? For those of the one one or two here that may not or the few that do not, uh, LGBT stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, And I am giving you LGBT, but the truth is that the list of letters grows every month. I believe now the list of letters is nine or ten. I can't keep up with all of them. Uh, They've even added a plus sign in there, I believe. Um, No doubt there are different opinions on this topic just within the room we're sitting in right now. Um... And so I'm going to try to categorically lay out what many of the stances are. I don't pretend to, to give you a full list, but I think this will get the large majority of folks both here in the room and abroad. Uh, there are those uh, here this morning, I'm sure there are those here this morning, that hate homosexuality uh, but know how to love the homosexual. There are those here today that both hate homosexuality and the homosexual. Some feel as though that homosexuality is just a sin like any other sin in the Bible. So they are very tolerant toward it. And they accept the fact that people lie. They accept the fact that people are uh, at times dishonest or fudge the truth. And those are sins just like homosexuality, so no big deal. There are those that maybe hold... To that viewpoint, shrug their shoulders and they don't uh, as much care. Some feel as though it's not a sin at all and that we should just let people be and let people make their own decisions. And we shouldn't be concerned about what uh, someone else does with their own sexuality. Let me just pause here. Uh, my comments today will not get above PG-13, probably not even above pg but if you have a child in the room and you are concerned about my words, raising questions at home, we do have a nursery and a junior church. We ask that you avail your children to. OK, and no one's going to think less of you if you were to get up right now uh, and use those uh, services. But again, I, I don't think I'll say anything this morning that's um, uh, going to have you ha- having to answer anything too difficult. Um, some people, uh, so, so there's all kinds of different stances on it and, uh, we could probably take a, a poll this morning and, and as long as it was left anonymous and people could answer as freely as they wanted, we could probably get people to answer all over that spectrum of where they stand. Um, now you don't, at least you ought not come to white Oak Baptist church to get my opinion on anything. Because my opinion matters about as much as your opinion does. Which, what's the old phrase? We all we all have uh, opinions like armpits and they all stink, right? Um, you didn't come here to hear my opinion. And so I'm not going to get up here this morning and give you my opinion. Because my opinion really doesn't matter. And the title of the message this morning is not Pastor Lejeune's perspective on the rainbow. It's God's perspective on the rainbow. And so what I want us to do this morning is lay aside what I think or what you think, and let's look at and see what God says in His Word. You wouldn't have come to church this morning with a Bible in your arms and opened it unless you felt that the book was credible. So if the book is credible, you can't pick and choose which parts are and which parts aren't. Either the whole thing's credible or the whole thing's a lie. You can't pick and choose. And so I'm not going to get up here this morning and and use any homophobic slurs or say anything unkind. Uh, But I am going to read and preach the Bible this morning and I'm going to try to do it with a compassionate tone. Now, one of the things I think I need to say in the introduction here is that um, we live in a day and age where people love to go online and take a sound bite and run with it. Please don't do that. You need to take the whole sermon and keep the every comment in context with the rest of the message. If, uh, if you hate me or you feel like you hate me when this sermon is over, uh, I would ask you, do you hate me or do you hate the word of God? Everything I'm going to say this morning, I'm going to back up with scripture. And I hope you understand that our goal here at White Oak Baptist Church is not to offend people. I don't write sermons like this so I can see how many people I can tick off. That's not the goal. Okay, My goal in preaching the sermon this morning is to help Christians that are living in the culture in 2019 know how to handle this issue. Because this is an issue we all have to face. We all deal with it. Uh, whether it's family or coworkers or neighbors or kids at school that your kids go to school with. We all have to deal with this issue. And so where the Bible speaks, we need to speak. And where the Bible is silent, we need to be silent. The Bible happens to have a lot to say about this topic. And it is my duty as a pastor to preach the whole counsel of God. Now, I want you to understand this morning that we need to lay aside our premonitions, our, our preconceptions, our own ideas and opinions and We need to understand that it's God's opinion that matters. It's God's opinion that matters. It was God that created man and woman. Okay? God created humanity. And God created sexuality. He did. And so God authored those things. He gets to dictate what the rules are around them. Not what someone's... Fleshly impulse says that doesn't get to dictate. The Bible gets to dictate because the Bible was written by God and God is the creator of mankind and the sexuality of mankind. It is not God that category. God did not just categorically create humanity. God created each and every human. Each and every individual God formed them, God shaped them, and God chose their DNA, their chemical balances, God chose, uh, what, uh, what, uh, uh, struggles they would have, uh, as far as their flesh goes. God was the one that dictated that. From the get go. So it's his perspective that we ought to seek out. Not 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 our co-workers perspective, not our friends perspective. Listen, uh, uh, you ought not even come at me saying, well, pastor, aside from the Bible, what do you think that doesn't even matter? What matters is what God says and what he thinks. And we need to hold to that and we need to believe it and we need not compromise on that. The rainbow, as we will discuss later in the sermon, has become the symbol of the LGBT community. But where did the rainbow come from? And what meaning does it have in Scripture? Is there something more to it than just a flag that people fly as they walk through the streets of a big city shouting their, as the Bible calls it, sin? let me be clear from the get-go that it is not my intent to preach against anybody today. I simply want to stand here and preach to you the Word of God. Now, here's my proposition to you this morning. I propose that too many Christians are concerned with being accepted by the world and their positions instead of being accepted by the God who made them. Too many Christians have concerned themselves with pleasing man and offending God. Instead, we should seek to please God, even if our position offends our fellow man. Our position on social issues, and every issue for that matter, should not be based on somebody's logical opinion or what makes us feel good. Our positions on social issues should be steeped in the scriptures. As the culture moves further away from God, their opinion on morality will continue to become more and more perverted and strange. Years ago, there was a big win by Satan to remove the God of morality from morality. And now we do what's right because it's just right to do. Well, who gets to define right if God doesn't? Who gets to define right if there's no principle Bible that tells us uh, what right and wrong is? And as the culture changes, our opinion and definitions of right and wrong change. And it changes so Fast that, uh, that you'll find something that someone who is with it, that you'll go back and find a tweet or something they said five, ten years ago, and all of a sudden, that's offensive. It wasn't offensive to the culture then, but it is now. Why? Because what's right and wrong continues to shift and change, and it is fluid. And my friend, morality is not fluid. Morality is set in stone, and it is dictated by the God of heaven. Our definitions of right and wrong should not be based on some basis of tolerance, but rather on the eternal and perfect Word of God, whose author created mankind. This morning, we're going to look at four main thoughts, and then we'll spend a few minutes looking at three concluding thoughts as we consider this topic God's perspective on the rainbow. On the back of your bulletin, there is a fill-in-the-blank outline. I would encourage you to take that out and, uh, and, and fill that in as we go. And if you want to take more notes on top of that, you're, you're kind of title in space today. You're going to have to find another piece of paper. Uh, but uh, fill in the blanks at least, and uh, you can go back and review this later. Okay, So we're going to look at God's perspective on the rainbow. Number one note is God's chastisement of mankind. God's chastisement of mankind. Turn back over to Genesis and look at chapter 6. Uh, we'll be back in chapter 8 in a few minutes, but look at chapter 6. We're going to find here the, um, a story that leads us to the flood. Now, what was the flood? Was the flood just some weird Mother Nature phenomenon that wiped out humanity? No. <laughs> the flood was God's wrath being poured down on man for being sinful. Plain and simple. You say, well, Pastor, I'm sorry, I just can't believe in the flood. Uh, Well, then you have to explain how uh, the Grand Canyon got there. And if your explanation is that it was the river that runs in the bottom that dug it out over millions of years, I find the flood a much more viable option. That water poured in from the sky right over where the Grand Canyon is and carried all that dirt away. You're also going to have to explain how fish fossils can be found on the top of a mountain thousands of miles away from a sea. You're going to have to explain to me how that happened. You're going to have to explain to me how a log could uh, cure in uh, layers of sediment that supposedly by evolutionary standards took millions of years to form. Did that log not decay in the millions of years that it stood straight up through those layers of sediment? You're gonna have, you're gonna have a lot of explaining to do. My friend, it's a lot easier to just believe that God said it and bang, there it was and He created the world just like the Bible says He did. God created mankind, He gave him a free will, and mankind chose to exercise that free will against morality and chose sin. And uh, uh, that was obviously the first sin or the original sin committed by Adam and Eve. And they passed their sin nature down on their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And things continued to spiral out of control to a place where the world had gotten so wicked, letter A, we find humanity's digression. Humanity's digression. They had spun out of control in such a way into such a place where God was sorry He even made man. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Bible says, "...and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts... Of his heart was only evil continually. Mankind had corrupted themselves to such a place that every thought that they thought was sin. Every thought they thought displeased God. Uh, every imagination they had uh, was dishonoring God. And not that that doesn't even describe the sin they made or the, the sins they committed. It just talks about categorically their thought life. If you look up in Genesis six at the end of verse two, it talks about. I believe the last two words of verse 2 are they chose, they chose. These were choices that mankind made. And by the way, what do we know from the second law of thermodynamics other than that everything tends toward disorder? That includes mankind. If you leave a man to his vices, if you leave a woman to her vices and you let them live and do what they want to and follow the impulses of their flesh and, and follow a if it feels good do it mentality, what you end up with is someone that just continues to debase themselves time and time and time again to a place where we have to arrest them and lock them up in prison. We deal with this, uh, we deal with this as a society all the time. And so humanity's digression, can I say to you today that you may be here and you may label yourself a morally good person. And I hope that you do achieve for that. I hope that you seek to treat your neighbor with kindness and that you seek to be a, a, a monogamous spouse and a, an a honest and careful and just parent and that you seek to be a, a honest with your time at work and you try to have some integrity about the way you live. But can I tell you that even in your best attempt to be righteous, the Bible says that we are all sinners. We're all sinners, every one of us. And that stands for the pastor and the deacons and the, uh, the leadership of the church all the way down to the person here today that is the most vile among us. And who knows, it might be one of the pastors or deacons. Who knows, but uh, the most vile among us. And we all are bent toward sin. And as it goes, the further we get away from God, the worse we get in that sin. America has been great for so many years because America, whether you want to accept it or not, America was based on and built on a Judeo-Christian ethic system in belief. And as we have gone further from our Judeo-Christian roots, we have continued to, to go further and further downhill. Humanity's digression, letter B, notice, God's disgust. God's disgust. Look down at verse number 6 of Genesis 6. How bad did it get? Well, it got so bad for God. Verse 6 says, and it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. Mankind got so wicked, and so vile, and so evil, and so awful, that God said to Himself, I regret that I ever even made humanity. I regret it. They're awful. I think a big mistake that goes on in our modern churches today is that we don't really treat sin like sin. Sin isn't just something that we laugh off or that we just accept in our life as being okay. You understand it was sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. You say, well, what sin was it that nailed Jesus to the tree? Was it murder? Was it uh, mishandling a child in a vulgar way? Was it, uh, was it abuse? Was it rape? What was it that nailed Jesus to the tree? And I would say it was all those things. But the very first sin that sent Christ to the cross was not murder. It was the disobedience of Adam. How much does God even hate our disobedient heart and our prideful attitude? And we see with the first sin ever committed in the history of the world and the creation of God was Satan and his great sin wasn't disobedience, it was pride. And how much does God hate our pride and our disobedience? And my friend, we've got to get back to a place today where we hate the sin within us on the same level that God hates sin. God was so put up with humanity that He regretted that He had ever even made them. Letter C, we see humanity's destruction. Look down at verse number 7. And the Lord said, I will destroy man when I have, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowl of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. It repenteth me. Uh, that I have made them. God was so put out with humanity that He came up with a plan to completely destroy humanity. Do I want you to hear what I'm about to say here. God still hates sin as much today as He did back then. His hatred towards sin has not changed or mellowed out one iota. Not one iota. God looked at their sin back then and it had become so... Uh, so uh, accepted and so normalized and it had been pushed on people in a culture in such a way that it was uh, it was just accepted to be the thing to do and the way to live and God looked at it and said hey i 'm still up here, I still made you, I still love you, I still want you to be holy, I still want you to set aside sin I still want you at that time to perform sacrifices of animals that will one day point to my son dying on a cross for the sins i 've st- uh, sins of the world i still committed to do that, but you all don't care about me. You all want to ignore me. You all don't want to have anything to do with me. Hey, i created man to worship me. i created man to fellowship with me. And if you're not going to fellowship with me, then I will just wipe you off the planet. That's how much God hates sin. Letter D, we see humanity's deliverance. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Genesis 6-8. Look at it there. But Noah... Found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was one man in all of humanity at that time who said, I don't care how everyone else is living, I will worship God. I don't care if people call me a hater, they call me intolerant, if they call me a weirdo weirdo or a bozo, I am going to love the God who created me. And God looked down and saw Noah and He saw His devotion to Him, His commitment to Him. And God said, I'm going to use Noah to save humanity. And you know the story. God told Noah, He said, build an ark, make it out of gopher wood, tar it inside and out, In Genesis 6, you find the dimensions there. And he had a very specific set of instructions to follow. And Noah surely did obey uh, the command of the Lord. And the day came where that big boat was sitting in the back of his yard. I'm sure he was the laughing stock of the neighborhood and the community. I'm sure that tour a tourist industry had probably even popped up around the boat. Come see the crazy thing that this nut job is building in his backyard. And uh, But the day came where God said to Noah, get your wife, your three sons and their wives and get on on the boat and I'm going to send two animals of each kind and put them on the boat and I'm going to send a flood that will totally demolish all living things you know there was only one way to be saved that day and that was by getting into that boat interestingly enough there's still only one way to be saved today they had to walk through the door Of that boat. Jesus said, He said in John, I am the door. I'm the door. No man comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way. I'm it. It begins and ends with me. You want to go to heaven? You've got to humble yourself. You've got to abase your heart. You've got to see that you're a sinner and that your sin is wicked and vile and separates you from a holy God. And listen, you're not going to be judged on that day in eternity for the good of your life. You're going to be judged for the sin of your life. And God is going to judge you. And if He finds you guilty of sin, He's going to cast you in hell and He's going to destroy you just like He destroyed humanity in that day because of the sin in your heart. But God has provided a way. By the way, Noah preached for 120 years. He said, get on the boat or you're going to die. Get on the boat if you want to be saved. And the world out there, they mocked Him. And they laughed at Him. And they put Him down. And the day came and that door was open. They were on that boat with the door open for many days. And then the Bible says in Genesis, I believe, chapter 7, that God closed the door. No, it didn't close the door. God's hand closed the door shut. And once that door was closed, there was no getting on the boat. One day, the door of opportunity for you to go to heaven will close. Don't delay. You say, well, Pastor, when will that door close? That door closes for each and every one of us when we slip into eternity. Now, I don't want to stand up here today and scare anybody, but do you know that any of us could die at any moment. Statistically speaking, you probably won't. But do you want to take chances with eternity? You, you could spend eternity in heaven with a God who loves you and send His only Son to die on the cross for you. You see, that, that ark, please don't miss this here, that ark in Genesis was an Old Testament picture of the cross. Just as they had to get into the ark... To be saved, the Bible says that we've got to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we must be in Christ to be a new creature. How do you get in Christ? You put your faith in him. Those, those people got in that boat trusting that God was going to send that flood. And they knew their only way of salvation was in that ark. The only way for you to be saved is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Knowing that the cross of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead is your only hope of deliverance from the wrath of God. Humanity's deliverance, even in God's destruction of humanity, he gave them a chance to be rescued and they thumbed their nose at it. They thumbed their nose at it until the door was closed and the rain started to fall and the flood started to rise. Can you hear the hands beating on the side of the ark? Let us in, Noah, let us in. We believe you now, Noah. But it was too late. It was too late. The time of decision was over. They had made their choice. After you die, it will be too late to make that choice. Why don't you today make that decision to put your faith in Jesus? Number one, God's chastisement of mankind. Number two, God's covenant with mankind. God's covenant with mankind. I'm going to say uh, this as well. Uh, For those of you that have a hard time with some of the social issues... Of today, listen, a good studying and understanding of Genesis 1, one through ten, one through twelve will really give you a wonderful Christian worldview to live by. You'll get a lot of things nailed down that you otherwise would struggle with if you just study that and understand those chapters god 's covenant with mankind. look at Genesis chapter eight, verse number twenty. So now the flood is over. The boat has come to a resting place. The waters have receded into what we now call oceans. And uh, the world is a much different place now than it was. Ice caps would form because of the flood and the lack of protection from a water canopy that I believe would have been around the planet. The oxygen levels in the air are lower. The uh, sun rays are more detrimental to mankind being the reason why you see the life uh, spans of people begin to fall off very rapidly after uh, the flood because the atmosphere was just a much different place uh, than it was afterwards. In fact, I believe it's... Um, uh, one of the uh, epistles, I want to say it's First Peter, but uh, I'm not remembering exactly the book. But it talks about uh, the different. No, Second Peter. Excuse me. Second Peter three talks about the different forms of the world. Uh, and Second Peter talks about that the world we live in now is a different world than it was prior to the flood. And there will be yet another world coming. We'll look at at the end of the sermon today. But God, uh, they walked off the ark and God made a covenant with man that he would never destroy the earth with a flood again. Look at Genesis 8 verse 20. The Bible says, and Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and, and offered burnt offerings uh, on the altar and the the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done, while the earth remaineth seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Look over at Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 9. It says, There, and I behold, I establish my covenant with you. A covenant is God's promise that He will never break. Covenant with you and with your uh, seed after you and with every living thing that is with you of the fowl, of the cattle, uh, and of every beast of the field with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast on the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. So, after the flood was over, mankind got off the boat, uh, Noah offered up an, uh, an offering to the Lord the, the the smell of that offering came into the nostrils of God. God smelled it, he was pleased with it. He said to himself, "I will never, ever destroy the earth with a flood." Ever again, I am making a covenant with humanity that I will no longer use water to destroy uh, all living kind off the planet anymore. Now, he did not say that he wouldn't use floods to, uh, 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 you know, in, in a smaller area, in a smaller geographical area. But he did say he would never use floods to destroy all of humanity ever again. And so God made a covenant with mankind. Number three, notice God's creation of the rainbow. God's creation of the rainbow. Look back at Genesis nine verse fourteen where we began this morning. Genesis nine fourteen says, And it came to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh and the bow or the rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Here's what I take out of reading Genesis 9. 14-17. through 17. God said this. He said, after it rains, I'm going to put a rainbow in the clouds. And here's the reason why I'm putting it there. When I become so put out with humanity that I am tempted to destroy them again, I'm going to look down and see that rainbow. And I'm going to remember the time I promised Noah I would not destroy the earth With a flood again. The rainbow is put there not for us to look at, but for God to look at and be reminded of the promise He's made to mankind that He would not destroy them with a flood. Now, I'm glad He put the rainbow in the sky. Because boy, they are beautiful to look at, aren't they? God's the one that created the rainbow. Number four, notice, Satan's corruption of the rainbow. Satan's corruption of the rainbow. Go over with me to Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18. Romans 1 verse 18. Now we're going to, uh, let me just say this. There are those who say, well, pastor, surely homosexuality is not a sin because God doesn't address it in the New Testament. It's just something in the Old Testament. And and here's what I tell you. We're going to look at a passage in the New Testament where it can't be any more clear. God is very not only clear that it is a sin, but He even gives us the path that people go down, uh, the, the path people go down to get there. Now, I do believe this about what we're going to read in this passage, is that this is the path of how it becomes an accepted part of a culture. Okay, um, uh, I don't know that this path to to uh, what the Bible calls abusers of themselves with mankind. That's a Bible term. I don't know that uh, that path is applicable to each and every individual. But I do believe it is applicable to a culture at large. Look with me at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, let me just stop and point at that phrase, the wrath of God. One thing that I want everybody to understand up front, and I emphasize it in the introduction, but I really want to emphasize it here, is that God not only hates sin, He's wrathful toward those that live in sin. There is a hatred. If I could find a stronger word, I would use it, folks. There is a strong hatred from God toward all sin. He hates it. He despises it. It it, it upsets him so much that he wiped the planet clean over it. And God's feelings towards sin have not changed one smidgen since then. When someone chooses to live a life in sin, they are on the wrong side of God. Now, uh, how patient is God? God is so patient that He's able to let somebody live in sin, and when they say something like, if there's a God in heaven, then just strike me dead. And He doesn't do it. It isn't because He doesn't hate their sin. It's because He's patient. That proves how much uh, patience and long-suffering that God has now uh, with us look back at verse 18 for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that uh, which uh, made, may be known of god is manifest in them For God hath showed it unto them. Look at verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Here's what verse 20 means. No, you can't see God, but you sure can see the fingerprints of God everywhere and you may deny uh, that god exists because you can't see him but you cannot deny the visible things that point to a fact that there is a godhead you can't deny it nobody would uh, would stand outside of this uh, in the parking lot and look at this building and say Huh, i wonder where the explosion was that created this place you see a building you assume there was an architect you see a painting you assume there, you assume there's a painter and if you look at how complex just the very DNA that makes up a plant or an animal or even a human being, which is far more complex, to believe that that set of DNA could have been put together for the first man by accident is like believing that a four-colored, uh, a four-colored book, a child's book with pictures and letters and words and numbers, uh, page numbers on it could have fallen out of the sky all on accident. They would have all landed in the right place. In fact, your DNA is far more complicated than that. And so to believe that somehow we got here by accident, you've got a lot lot more faith than I do in believing in God. The Bible says here that we know the invisible things exist because we can clearly see the visible evidences of that invisible God. Look at verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain or or empty or vile in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. What's that mean? Intellectually, they knew there was God, but spiritually, they chose not to worship Him as God. And after time, their intellect grew dark because they didn't worship God. When you choose not to worship the God that you know created you, the lights of your intellect go down slowly but surely. Look at verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. So now they're changing the form of God into an image Made like to a corruptible man into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What's that mean? Well, instead of worshiping the God of heaven, now they're worshiping His creation. We don't have any of that going on, do we? We have people that worship trees and, and animals. I'm already going to say a lot of things today that just offend a lot of people. And it's not my intent, again, to offend anybody. It's just my intent to stand where God stands. But hey, while we're doing that... Why is it that we're more concerned about an endangered species than a baby in a mother's womb? What's the deal? How come we care more about preserving some sea lion of a a certain breed than we do about preserving life inside a mother? Can I tell you I'm pro-choice? I am for you making that choice before you climb in the sack with somebody. The choice should have been made prior to you getting pregnant. And I believe that if we would just take sexuality and put it back in marriage, we'd fix 99% of the problems in this world. Hebrews says that uh, God intended for sexuality be to be between one man and one woman, and that only for life. Now we worship creation, verse 24. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The downward slope. Look at verse 26. We see what God does with these people. These people that have chosen to worship the creation instead of the Creator have chosen to shut God out of their lives and and deny the Creator, verse 26, for this cause. God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. What happens is God says that that's how you want to live and that's how perverted you want to be. Then I'll just let you change the natural use of a woman. And I'll let women be with women and men be with men. And I'll let you label that as natural. There is a downward slope and the bottom of that slope is not uh, homosexuality. The bottom of that slope is a reprobate mind. Now, there are pastors that would disagree with me on this. There are good men that would disagree with me on this. But here's my firm stance, is that the bottom of the slope is the reprobate mind. And you can live in the world of being a homosexual without being a reprobate mind. Once you enter this phase of God turning you over to a reprobate mind, you're done. You will go to hell. You cannot come back to Repentance. God has given you over to a mind that has no opportunity to repent because you have chosen so hard against God, you have crossed one of God's deadlines. Now there may be someone here today that would disagree with me and I would say before you come talk to me about it, you need to get in your Bible and study what a reprobate mind is in the scripture and then we can sit and chat. Let me give you an A to B here, letter A, a symbol of rebellion. A symbol of rebellion. Now, the rainbow flag is the most widely recognized symbol of the LGBT community. The rainbow flag uh, um, was uh, first created by a man by the name of Gilbert Baker in 1978. He calls himself the Gay Betty Ross, and he created this flag for a gay pride parade in San Francisco, California, who at the time had a gay uh, uh, mayor. Now, uh, once this flag was brought out, it was—and again, I'm reading off of Wikipedia here. Okay, so this isn't my opinion. This is what uh, the LGBT community has proudly put on the website for the rainbow flag. So I, I want you to understand where this is coming from. It, 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 according to Wikipedia, it immediately became the symbol of the LGBT community. And the original flag had eight colors, not six. Each color had its own meaning. Here are the eight colors, and according to that Wikipedia page, here are the meanings of those colors. The, uh, the color pink represented sex, red represented life, orange, healing, yellow, sunlight, green, nature, turquoise, magic, blue, peace, and violet, spirit. And so they lifted this flag up in rebellion against a God who was the one who created the rainbow. Let me give you letter B and I'll I'll, uh, continue with that thought. Uh, Letter B, a symbol of revulsion. A symbol of revulsion or hatred. Look at Romans 1, verse 29. It says, They're being filled with all unrighteousness. Speaking of these people. Fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, Malignity, whispers, backbiters. Look at this next one: haters of God, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, uh, Im, Im, uh, Im, impl- implacable. Impl- impl- Impossible, there it goes, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, you have to ask yourself this question, why did the LGBT community gravitate so quickly to the rainbow? Now, I'm not going to say that uh, this applies to every single person who would uh, label themselves inside that community, but I do believe this firmly and wholeheartedly. There were forces at work behind the scene, satanic in nature, that made sure that the rainbow became the symbol. Isn't it? Now again, I'm asking you to set aside your opinion and perspective. Well, I set aside my opinion and perspective, and I'm asking you to look at this from God's perspective. Now, all the way back in Genesis, we looked at how that God took the rainbow and put it in the sky and said, anytime I'm fed up with humanity and I want to destroy them, I'm going to be able to look down and see a rainbow and remember the promise I made to forbear and be long-suffering and patient. And along comes a community that absolutely uh, the Bible labels as sinful, someone God has turned over to do things that are unnatural, uh, uh, someone that every time you find a crowd like this in the Bible, God heavily punishes. And what do they do? They stick a rainbow in the face of God and say, remember, you can't punish us. Oh my goodness. What must God feel when He looks down and see them shoving a rainbow back in His face? Now again, I don't believe that every person who fits in this community that waves a flag is trying to shove the rainbow Back in God's face. But I do believe that the community at large is. Because why? Because Satan's at work. Now, I want to give you three concluding thoughts. And I want to talk about Christians, how we handle this. The first thing I want to say this morning is that you need to take an immovable stand on this topic. You don't need to worry about riding a fence. Please hear me. Please hear me. Okay? I've shared this before. I'll share it again here. There are three steps to creating a revolution. You pick the topic... You show me where any revolution in history has happened, and I promise you that these three things have occurred. The first thing that must happen for a revolution to occur is that you must celebrate which was once condemned. You must celebrate that which was once condemned. Number two, you must condemn that which was once celebrated. You must condemn that which was once celebrated. And number three, you must punish those that will not join in on the celebration. There is one hard truth in this today, and that is this. If you want to ride the fence, you will not be allowed to ride the fence. And that's not by me. That's by them. They want to know where you stand. This morning on my way into church, I was listening to a podcast that I listen to regularly uh, called The Briefing. And it's put out by a, a Baptist man uh, in, a, in, a, in Nashville, Tennessee. And he has a large following. It's a large um, a podca- podcast podcast. And I would encourage you to subscribe to it and listen to it. It's, it's really good, and, and a lot of what he says is, is great. It offers a, a Christian worldview to a lot of the uh, cultural topics out there. Uh, but uh, uh, randomly enough, I was listening to the one that he put out Friday, and he talked about how that there was a singer, I believe, or a Hollywood actor, who's going to a church in the, the Los Angeles area called the Hillsong Church. And I don't know a lot about Hillsong. I know that they are a, a pop culture type uh, thing. A lot of people, a lot of young people, are attracted to that style, and they do a lot, a lot more singing than preaching. Uh, but uh, this guy was going to a Hillsong church, and someone part of the LGBT community tweeted tweeted at him and said this. They said, uh, uh, you uh, you call yourself someone who's a nice guy, but you go to a church that is hateful toward the LGBT community." You know what she was doing? She was about on Twitter, she was telling him, pick sides, buddy. Pick sides. You're either one of us or you're one of them. If you're going to be in Hollywood, you need to be one of us and stop being one of them. And he came back and gave the most wishy washy answer he could have given, trying to ride the fence. Now, I think that as a Christian, if you are a true believer in the Bible and believe what it says, there really only is one position you can take on the topic. Let me let uh, me move into the three concluding thoughts here. Number one, thought number one, the demeanor of the Christian, the demeanor of the Christian. Please hear what I'm about to say. Let it be your position that offends, not your disposition. I repeat, let it be your position that offends, not your disposition. We have a crowd here this morning that I have—I've um, I've really challenged your thought processes on the topic, and you were sympathetic or leaning toward believing that that was okay. And I have uh, stepped on your toes a little bit this morning, and I've allowed Scripture to step on your toes rather. There is another crowd in church today than this crowd. Um, I don't necessarily know an individual that would be this way, although in a church this size and it being a Baptist church, imagine there's a crowd here. Your, your struggle isn't that you have a stand against homosexuality. Your stand is that you're just a jerk. You're just not nice. Can I tell you that God loves everybody? And he uses us to show that love to the world. Look at Romans chapter two. Now, um, Romans 1 a hard-hitting chapter, man. It's in your face. Paul, Paul spares no punches. He just lays it out there. And then he comes around in chapter 2 and he tells, he tells everybody, he says, but you be careful how you handle folks. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, with all of that in mind, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for uh, that thou that judgest do, uh, doest uh, the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that, uh, that uh, judgest them uh, uh, which do such things and doest the same, uh, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Now, uh, to give you some historical context here, Romans was written to uh, a church that was divided. In in the church of Rome, you had Hebrews uh, or Jewish folks and you had Gentile folks. And they weren't getting along at the time. Paul wrote the book. And so, Paul is addressing the pious, uh, stuck-up religious folks uh, who were Jews there, and saying to them, hey, you need to be more kind to your Gentile brethren. So, Romans 1 was written to point out the transgression of the Gentile world. And then he comes behind in Romans 2 and he writes that to the Jewish community in the church, and he says to you Jewish folks that are all worked up, because I just got all over the Gentiles for their sin, hey, Don't you judge Now I will take a stand all day Against against That which goes on Between two men and two women in a bedroom But I will never Be a jerk to someone who is involved In that sin You know what they need us to do They need us to show them verse 4 They need us to show them the forbearance And the riches of His goodness And the long suffering Of God When someone comes my way and I find, well, well, let me just give you a couple scenarios here. All right. I, uh, I go to a restaurant with my family. And I'm given a seat. And I, my waiter or waitress comes up and it is clear which persuasion they are of. Do you know what I don't do? I don't say, may I see your manager? Could I have a different server, please? I don't do that. You know what I do? I let them serve my table and I show them the love of Jesus. If I'm signed up to get a haircut, and I'm not saying everyone's got to stand with me on this one, okay? But if I'm signed up to get a haircut at a place and the barber I'm giving at random happens to be a guy who is gay, I let him cut my hair. I've looked at myself in the mirror. I'm not too worried. Amen. <laughs> And you know what I do? I share with him the love of Jesus. I'm not going to judge him. I'm going to love him. You know why? I'm not his judge, God is. One day if he's living a life of sin or he crosses even some line here on earth, God will make that determination. I don't need to do that for God. I need to show them the love of Jesus. And can I tell you that in my 30 years of being a Christian, I've had the opportunity to sit across from several people who are are self-pronounced gay and show them the love of Jesus and watch them bow their head and trust Christ for their salvation. Now, I will take a stand all day against what the Bible says on that topic, and I will stand with Scripture. But that doesn't mean that I've got to be a jerk. That doesn't mean that I've got to try to act like God and be a judge. No, I can show the love of Jesus to people. Thought number two, the deliverance of the repentant. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9. Those of you that are new to our church that don't know me very well, if my uh, uh, sermon earlier uh, seemed harsh, please understand that I am am a, a, a shepherd, a gentle person at heart. Uh, I, uh, I, I believe in taking a stand where the Bible takes a stand. But I also believe that God needs us to use us to be uh, uh, channels to love the world around us. And that God is way more for, forbearing and long-suffering and patient than any of us could ever begin to understand. And while God is a God of wrath, He is a perfect balance of love. And God knows how to use His love to save people from the ultimate wrath of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. And if you're listening online or you're here this morning and you fall in the camp of maybe being part, a self-identified part of the LGBT community, whether that's public or private, let me show you this in the Bible this morning. The Bible says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit, verse 9, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, The language God uses to describe uh, this act is quite a bit more harsh than the terms that we're used to hearing. Verse 10, "...nor thieves, nor covetous, nor uh, drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God." If you die one day and stand before God and any of these things are laid on your account, you will not see, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. This brings great hope. Paul says to the church of Corinth, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's interesting how I could stand up here 52 Sundays in a row and preach against adultery and no one would care. But the second I preach on this topic, boy, someone gets upset. You know that in the eyes of God, both an adulterer, someone who dies without on their account, not having been forgiven by God, and someone, as the Bible labels, an abuser with mankind, they're going to stand in front of God and face ultimately the same punishment. You're here today and you've done wrong and you're a sinner, whether it's a big sin in your mind or a little sin in your mind, all sin carries the same eternal consequence. Can I tell you that God is offering His blood to wash you today. To take those sins away. Give you a home in heaven. He can deliver you from whatever lifestyle you're involved in. But you must first accept that it's sin. and You must turn to the Savior and believe that He can save you. Thought number three, the damnation of the wicked. Turn over to Second Peter chapter 3. To those that so spitefully wave the rainbow flag in God's face. And again, I don't think everyone in that community does that. But the community as a whole does. And I believe the large majority of people do that. Uh, God has something to say to them about their rainbow flag waving uh, ways. Look at Second Peter 3 verse 6. It says there, I'll begin reading whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, speaking of the flood. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. My friend, God is going to punish wickedness one more time. He's going to wipe off humanity, off the planet one more time. Except this time, He's not going to use water. He's going to use fire. And He's going to burn up this heaven and earth, 2 Peter 3 tells us. And He's going to give us a new heaven and a new earth. And those that are in the ark of the cross, that have put their faith in Jesus, will be saved. Those that don't will fall under the damnation of the hand of God. My goal here today, this morning, is not to offend anybody. My goal here is to show you that if you are a sinner, God loves you. And He wants to save you. He shed His only His blood, all of His blood on the cross. So that could be the cleansing agent for your soul. And it's freely available today. The question is, will you repent and humble your heart? Receive Christ? Or will you continue on in your pride? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. How many here today say, Pastor, there was a day and time in my life I put my faith and trust in Jesus to save me. I know I'm going to heaven, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of what Jesus did for me. I trusted in him. He put his his grace into my life, washed my sins away, and gave me the gift of eternal life. I'm going to heaven. I'm sure of that. If that's your testimony, would you just slip your hand up right where you are? You know for sure you're going to heaven. Would you hold your hand high? If you're here today and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you,